Welcome to the Limitless Energy Podcast, and today my guest is nuclear physicist Taylor Wilson. Welcome, Taylor. It's good to be with you. A lot of people know your story, but I do want to talk about it a little bit because you've got a very unconventional story for a physicist in general, um, and you started very young as a physicist, uh, went to school, and basically skipped college, went yeah. right to the right to the professional part of it. So can you give a little background about how that came about? Yeah, well, so I mean, the uh, the short version of it all is that I was always interested in science. So way back when I was, gosh, I don't know, five or six years old, I was I was interested in science. And I, you know, thought I was gonna be an astronaut and was building rockets and, and doing, uh, you know, genetic engineering experiments in my garage. Just, just for the record, I thought I was going to be an astronaut yeah. too, but I didn't build any rockets. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. go ahead. Well, um, I guess I was I was precocious in that way. I always wanted the real thing. And uh, so I, I was, you know, just really interested in how the world worked and how, you know, not only, you know, things worked, but kind of the underlying principles of, of you know, nature and, 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 uh, and engineering and, and when I was 10 years old, I found nuclear science and I was like, wow, this is like, you know, really interesting. It's it's it is the fundamental kind of forces and, and matter that makes up our universe. And so I got into nuclear science and I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And I started collecting radioactive material and uh, decided that I wanted to access some of these very fundamental uh, transmutation reactions. So I started to build small particle accelerators and um, when you were 10? Yeah, when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old. And uh, and at some point I decided, well, I want to build a nuclear fusion reactor. And so when I was 14, I produced nuclear fusion. And, uh, you know, that was a fun project. Um, but up until that point, everything I'd done, it, it really had already been done. It wasn't new science. It was just replicating stuff other people had done in the past. Um, but once I built that nuclear reactor, with that, that, that fusion device, um, that gave me the opportunity to start doing new things. And uh, the University of Nevada, Reno, um, their physics department, I had a lab up there uh, throughout my kind of high school years. And uh, there's a school here in Reno called the Davidson Academy. And so I grew up in Arkansas, uh, but the whole family moved out so that me and my brother could, could attend the Davidson Academy. And it was during that time uh, that I had my lab up at the physics department and got to build some interesting experiments and do some some fun nuclear related things and uh yeah by the time i was ready to graduate high school i was like well let's let's go out and see see what i can do how i can apply this let's this skip knowledge college and yeah. grad school and yeah stock and okay so yeah let's start there so yeah. you you had built uh, a nuclear reactor at 14 so obviously you're 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 very gifted you have a lot of interest mm -hmm. um and you basically got started on a career as a nuclear physicist so how did you raise money did you start experiments in your in your home at the university how what progressed there yeah no that's a great question so um so so going back to like what would have been you know like my say freshman year of high school right so i had this nuclear reactor that i'd built and i i started thinking about the ways that i could apply uh, you know, nuclear techniques or, you know, the technology 
or technologies that went into that reactor to solving different problems. So one of the first things I did was um, work on uh, nuclear security related uh, counterterrorism and nonproliferation issues. So how do we say if you have a cargo container that's coming to the United States, how can we determine if there's nuclear material inside that cargo container? So what, why did you go in that direction? Well, I mean, it's it's a great question. I, I think, you know, for, for a variety of the things I've done in kind of the applied nuclear physics space, you know, there was some problem out there that I'd seen and I thought, well, there's something I, I can contribute to that. So in the case of, of um, you know, nuclear nonproliferation, you know, I, I grew up, I lived through 9-11 and, and uh, in the, the environment around, you know, the early 2000s. And I, I realized that, you know, even though the likelihood of a terrorist or a group using a nuclear weapon, um, you know, in a, in a terrorist attack was very low, that the consequence of that happening is, is a very high consequence event. So that was something that was kind of on my mind. And I was like, well, if I have some some part I can play, you know, some way I can help out, I probably should do that. I, I when, when after 9-11 happened, mm -hmm. I was a college professor. Mm -hmm. And I remember that there was all of a sudden a lot of worry about terrorism. And often professors will do work they know they can get funded. Sure, and yeah. this often related to, well, I, th I think I can apply what I know to yeah. counterterrorism. That was not your angle. It's not like, oh, I know I can get funding for this, right? <laughs> this was this was true like interest on your part. Yeah, I would say almost all the projects I have, either A, it's just something new I thought of and I'm like, oh, no one's ever tried that, I'm gonna go try it. Or it's something where I thought, oh, this is like a really kind of pressing issue that might kind of be a little frustrating or a little stressful to me. And I think, oh, well, I can go out and in some way contribute to that, so. So is funding something you don't worry about? You just, do you just start a project? Yeah, so, you know, my kind of background, right, I start building experiments in my garage. So even to this day, even though I have Obviously, you, you can work on a shoestring. Yeah, and yeah. even though I have more resources than I did when I was, you know, fourteen, I still a lot of times will start a project in my garage. So, like, you know, if there's some new material I want to make, I'll go out into the garage and start, you know, fooling around and trying to make that new material. And then, you know, once I've demonstrated I can do it, then kind of scale from there. Um, and then you work through through developing collaborations or and, and getting. I mean, I'm I no. don't mean to be harping on no. funding, yeah. but as a professor for quite some time it was all about funding it was all about how do you not only do you need money to actually do experiments mm -hmm. but you're often judged by how much money you bring in and yeah. and you're kind of you're kind of sheltered from that in some way you don't have to worry about that right that frees you up a lot but yeah. how do you get the work done yeah no it's 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 a great question um i mean like i said you know for a lot of the projects i do you know i kind of start them myself right and then you know once i've demonstrated hey that might work whether it's a new material or a new process or a new type of you know electronics or you know whatever it is uh, once i demonstrate that i i can do it or at least you know kind of proof of concept then i like to go out and build a team around it so i Today, um, I kind of split my t time between two different kind of realms. You know, one is is more fundamental science. So that's more in the academic world. That's looking at everything from you know basic physics and chemistry, uh, the fundamentals of of radiation's interaction with matter and even biology. Um, and then the other kind of realm, which is the applied world or the commercial world. And in that case, you know. Uh, 
these projects come about in a lot of different ways. So in some cases, I'll take it to kind of that prototype stage and then I'll spin it out and let someone else commercialize it. Uh, in some cases, I'll commercialize it myself. Uh, and in some cases, you know, if if uh, a company or organization or the government has a challenge that they are having problems with, I'll go in and say, hey, I, I, I know a way we might could fix this. And so a lot of the work I do in that way is contract for others where, you know, the government wants to, a good example of that is a project I did with uh, nuclear robotics. So the government wanted to clean up a site where they manufactured um, enriched uranium. So they enriched this um, uranium isotope. And it's a very challenging project because it's a very large facility. It's got hundreds of miles of piping. And so we developed robots that could basically go through this facility and inventory the uranium that was held up in the equipment. And in doing so, you know, created a technology that was able to save a lot of money, save a lot of time, you know, reduce accidents and things like that. Um, and so I, I really enjoy that. I mean, I, I enjoy getting to kind of work on my own projects that I kind of think up in the shower. And I also enjoy kind of solving problems that people come to me with and say, hey, we, we have this challenge. Do you have any ideas on, you know, how we can fix it? And that that's also very rewarding. That's great. Yeah, you're not you're not limited, actually. You've, you you work with companies, you work with, with uh, university groups, and mm -hmm. you've, you said you've commercialized things yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it all kind of depends on, on what the idea is or what the scale of the idea is. Um, so, again, I, I like working on a lot of different problems. So on a given day or a given week, I'll be working on material science, I'll be working on radiation biology, I'll be working on medicine. Um, and in that way, it kind of keeps my brain firing on a lot of different cylinders. So I get to work on a lot of different areas. Um, now, one thing, you know, when, it, when I graduated high school and kind of branched out on my own, so to speak, um, I was kind of looking at the problem set that existed in society. And so, you know, I'd worked on medical um, uh, uh, processes and, and problems. I'd worked on security issues. Um, but... I, I kind of looked out at the landscape and I, I saw that, you know, energy was going to be, you know, this next great frontier, right? That even at that point, and this is so, this is 2011, 2012, I, I could tell, I, you know, I had that early inclination that we were um, on the precipice of this massive transformation in the way that we use energy, the way we consume energy, the way we, uh, you know, transmit energy, all these things. And so, um, that that was driven by challenges, right? Like, uh, you know, climate change, but it also was driven by, you know, this kind of very abundant opportunity to do things better than we'd done it before and enable new mission sets and do things more cleanly and efficiently and all these things. And so energy, I would say, even since, you know, 2012 has been really the biggest focus of my time. So even though I spend a lot of time working on a lot of different issues, um, you know, if people ask me, what are you focused on or what's kind of your biggest priority? It really is energy. Well, let's focus on energy. Sure, yeah. So where, where does, what gets you excited now about how nuclear energy can contribute moving forward? Because obviously there's been a lull and, uh, you know, historically nuclear energy has been uh, theoretically the, the cleanest kind of energy that we can make. Mm -hmm. um, so how are we going to do it safely? What are the, what are the, greatest challenges and what are you most excited about in that realm? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. Um, and I'll preface this by saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a lot of different energy technologies. Um, of course, my background is nuclear. And um, when I was, so 
when I was in high school is when Fukushima happened. And up until that point, I, you know, obviously viewed nuclear as this, you know, thing that had great potential and, and, you know, didn't probably spend a lot of time thinking about the downsides. And, and, and Fukushima really reinforced to me that obviously I knew this was a very powerful technology, but it was a technology that really had never been perfected, right? The fact that in this country, we really have not built new nuclear in a long time. And when we have, it has been kind of the same original light water reactor designs that, you know, we initially put atoms on the grid with in the 1950s. So, you know, there was all this opportunity and, and it's not a new concept. I mean, for decades, people have talked about new types of reactors, you know, whether they're cooled with metal or molten salts, um, you know, breeder reactors, all of these things. Um, but nuclear never really made its leap into the 21st century. And so after Fukushima happened, again, about the time I was graduating high school, I really start to, started to think a lot about, you know, how can I help push nuclear into the 21st century, you know, knowing that nuclear is emissions free, uh, it doesn't emit carbon dioxide. Um, and I think most importantly, it's an incredibly dense source of power, right? Um, you know, the amount of energy contained in just a very small amount of uranium is, is just almost unfathomable. And so when you think of a lot of these things, just as the amount of materials and resources that you need, uh, nuclear really checks off a lot of the boxes because you can build just a few nuclear power plants and uh, you know produce very abundant amounts of, of clean energy if you can do it safely. If you know you can reduce or eliminate the risk of a meltdown, and you can reduce the quantity of radioactive waste and how long you need to store that waste for, and all of these things. So, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and um, and still do. And so, you know, my hope is that combined with a lot of these other new energy technologies that advanced fission and then looking out on the horizon fusion, you know, we'll be able to provide a very, um, very dense source of dispatchable generating capacity. So where you have, you know, the ability to produce that power on demand without a lot of variability, you know, that matches really well with the other technologies that are really um, you know, having a, having a, a renaissance, so to speak, technologies like solar, wind, geothermal. Um, and so, you know, if we look out, say, 20 years into the future, what does the energy mix look like? Well, today, all the new generating capacity that's being installed is either really renewables, so solar, wind, a little bit of geothermal, but, you know, primarily non-dispatchable forms of energy generation, and then a lot of um, uh, natural gas generation. So, the most efficient, you know, the, the or, you know, the, the most cost-effective source of, of power that a utility may today want that's dispatchable is uh, these uh, the, the combined cycle gas turbine plants. So if you're a utility today, you're buying a lot of renewable capacity and you're buying a lot of, you know, combined cycle gas turbine plants. And um, if we really want to deeply decarbonize the grid and want to go away from fossil fuels, um, not only for the climate, but for, you know, just basic economics, you know, the fact that natural gas is a limited resource and has very unpredictable pricing. Um, if you really want to do that and you want to go away from fossil fuels, I think, you know, looking out 20 years, that that mixture could be a mixture of renewables like solar wind backed with battery storage um, with, you know, some advanced nuclear um, there also. Well, obviously that's, that's where we're headed. You know, we believe that it will be economical for utility companies to, to actually install more solar and wind if there's a lot more 
uh, storage on the grid. That's what we're working towards in terms of the the, the levelized cost of the storage, the safety of the storage. But mm -hmm. it's 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 still a tall order to completely decarbonize without something else, yeah. without more nuclear. Yeah. Um, so how how feasible is it going to be to do that safely? We're going to need more, right? No, absolutely. And 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 that it really is the challenge. I mean, it, it it really is kind of a necessary thing that we'll have to have, you know, going forward in the generating mix as a a, a not just low carbon, I, I think a carbon free baseload dispatchable, you know, energy source. And and nuclear kind of fits a lot of those a lot of those aspects. And so how do we do it? And and my opinion is we're probably just not going to see a lot of new nuclear built the way we built it in the latter mid part of the 20th century where um, you built these very large gigawatt scale nuclear power plants and each one was kind of a one-off design and, and build process out in the field and say Georgia you think somewhere. it'll be more distributed smaller yeah so you know what I really believe in and spend a lot of time working on is this idea of, of a of a small modular nuclear reactor uh, that you can build in a factory very similar to the way that you build airliners. So if you look back in the history of commercial aviation, you know, early airliners um, were, you know, very expensive. They weren't that safe. Um, and that's kind of where nuclear, you know, was in the 20th century. Um, but companies like Boeing were able to standardize the design, the regulatory compliance process, the quality assurance process and everything and make airliners, uh, you know, commercial jets that were safe, that were something that you could insure, that you could build in quantity, and that really opened up the commercial jet age. And nuclear has never really had that. So kind of what I've spent a lot of time working on is this idea of a, a small nuclear reactor um, that you can build in a factory where each one is the same design, the same license, the same quality assurance process. And if you can build them in that way, I think not only do you dramatically improve things like safety and quality, but you can dramatically lower the cost because and of those. And just ease of deployment as well. And ease of deployment, absolutely. And it's also from a utility standpoint. You know, utility today, they may want to install nuclear, but it's a huge hurdle for them to say, well, we have to have these massive capital outlays, and we don't really know what the you know installed final cost is going to be. It might be you know a decade delayed because each one is kind of its own individual design, own own site uh, licensing, and all of that. Um, so by building in a factory and standardizing it, you kind of lower the the, the barrier for a utility to say this is something we want to we want to install uh, as part of our generating capacity. And um, and so if you can build a nuclear reactor in a factory, you have all these you know economic advantages uh, you have safety advantages and then you just have to figure out what's the right kind of reactor to build and that's what i've spent basically the last i don't know decade <laughs> doesn't feel like that long but uh, mm -hmm. the last decade thinking about is is what is the best um reactor uh, what's the best coolant for that reactor the best fuel the best kind of you know mode and methodology of operation all of these things and so you know what i have today i think really is that reactor you know it's a reactor that is um cooled by molten salts so it's a really great heat transfer mechanism um you've taken water out of the equation you know water in a nuclear reactor is really responsible for a lot of the kind of inherent instability of that reactor so the ability of 
uh, coolant to void or go away, then the fuel can melt. You know, the, the hydraulic potential to spread radioactivity out of the core, uh, chemical reactivity uh, that generates hydrogen, which can cause explosions. So just by changing the coolant, you've dramatically improved the safety profile of this reactor. And then you add in things like um, natural passive circulation for removing heat in the event of an accident where you don't need an operator, you don't need offsite power to remove heat. Uh, you know, if if something goes wrong, um, you use fuel that is much better fuel than we use today. Fuel that uh, basically can withstand, you know, way past the temperature that an accident scenario would ever generate without melting. Um, and, you know, you just add in all these different features. What you end up with at the, at the end of this design process is a reactor that is, say, 150, 200 megawatts thermal. You use a really efficient power cycle. You might get 80, 90, 100 megawatts worth of um, electrical um, power out of that reactor. And it's a reactor that really, no matter what you do to it, I mean, even the conditions, the extreme conditions that the reactors at Fukushima faced, earthquakes and water inundation and all these things, you know, there's just no potential or way for the radioactivity in the core to exit the reactor and uh, cause problems. I'm sure you've done a lot of analysis on this. Mm -hmm. uh, have you come up with any levelized cost numbers? Yeah, I mean, so so cost is always the big question, right? Um, you know, what I wanted to do is create a reactor technology that is competitive with combined cycle gas turbines, you know, natural gas plants. Uh, and, and Which one, we're talking cents per kilowatt hour. Yeah, I mean, the so there's different different metrics you can use, right? So dollar per installed watt, uh, you know, cost for generating, you know, of, you know, seven, eight cents a kilowatt hour, um, potentially less than that, five cents a kilowatt hour uh, generating cost, uh, wholesale electricity cost. Um, but really to make it work, to make it pencil out, you know, big nuclear power plants take a long time to pay off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a large nuclear power plant that was built, say, in the 1970s, it took a little while to pay off the, uh, the cost. But I think that if you can build them in a factory and you can standardize the design, you can get the cost out the door to be really competitive with fossil generation. And then I think it's a really obvious case for a utility to buy that technology because not only do you have a technology that is compatible, uh, uh, that is competitive with or comparable with, you know, the, the dollar per installed watt generating of, of fossil, but it is carbon free. And you don't have to worry about the pricing of the fuel over the life of the power plant. So, you know, with things like coal, natural gas, you know, these, these fossil resources that you have to buy fuel supply for, you know, the price can be incredibly variable over the, the, the life of the, of the plant. And another aspect of these reactors that I've really worked hard to create is a life of reactor core, meaning even nuclear power plants today really only keep the, re the fuel in the reactor for, say, 18 months, you know. And so if you can create a reactor where you load all of the fuel in the reactor at the beginning of life for the duration that that plant generates electricity, um, not only have you done a lot of things for the economics, but you've also improved the proliferation resistance and the security aspects of that reactor. So that's another aspect to all this, which is I want to fight, I want to fight climate change and I want to create, you know, an energy technology that is, you know, um, you know, producing all these benefits, you know, for, for humankind. But what's the typical duration that you imagine, like 30 years, 50 years? So it depends. I think the first generation of reactors will probably be less than 20 year operating life. Um, 
partly that's the the fuel burnup, partly that's materials issues and things. But even if the first reactors only have a 15 to 20 year operating life, you might could push that with further generations of reactors. Um, but our, our plan right now, say the first generation of reactors is, you know, even if you have a 15 year design life, you ship it, you fuel it, you run it for 15 years, and then you bring it back and you can recycle a lot of the components back into new reactors. Uh, not the fuel necessarily, not right away, um, but the profile of the fuel is, is, is um, the goal is to make the fuel less radiotoxic. So not only the isotopes that are in the fuel, but also the duration that those isotopes are radioactive. You've changed the profile from light water reactors, and so you have much less waste to deal with and potentially have to deal with it for a lot less amount of time. Who buys into this vision now and who needs convincing? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a good question. I, I think, and I always tell people this because people are like, well, is it a funding issue, is it whatever? And I'm like, well, no, it's... Is it's, it a policy issue? I mean, if it can be done now? Yeah, I mean, it, there, there are policy and funding aspects to it, but really it's going to require, you know, maybe that's me, maybe that's someone else, but it's going to require the kind of first generation of the technologies to be, the, the reactors to be gener uh, to demonstrated. And, and once it's demonstrated, I think you will see, you know, a real proliferation of the technology. Um, but it just requires, you know, good engineering, good material science, you know, folks that are really smart working through these technical challenges um, and building that kind of first of its kind reactor. Is the hurdle engineering or is it actual public opinion and policy and you yeah. know, the ability to actually deploy something like this without freaking people out? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I think today, so 2023, um, we have mostly moved past the engineering issues. I would say today in 2023, it's now a, a question of how you execute it and, and bring it to fruition. So that's both funding, although it seems like Department of Energy and the federal government is very interested in advanced nuclear and supporting it, at least on a kind of cost sharing basis in the development where they match, you know, private funding. I would imagine they listen to you on this topic. Yeah. And, and, and we've had discussions and I, I I really do think you see a lot of support. The other thing about nuclear is it's a very bipartisan issue, right? So you have people from the right, the left, you know, across all different administrations and, and levels of government that are interested in nuclear. You know, if, if you can make it safe and you can demonstrate that it's safe, I think there's a lot of support across the kind of ideological spectrum for it. Um, and what my hope is that we kind of can change the thinking around nuclear, right? That, you know, obviously nuclear has a stigma around it. And I would say, probably most people, I don't know if this is true or not, I, I don't feel this way, but I would say most people probably aren't super comfortable with a nuclear reactor going into their town or their neighborhood. But I think the technology is there, the engineering, the science is there to change that, at least in principle. And so if we can demonstrate you know, a new generation of this technology, I'm really hopeful from a public perception chance, uh, standpoint that we can kind of change that, uh, that, that, uh, that mentality. But, um, but as with a lot of energy technologies, really economics is going to be the biggest driver. And even though nuclear energy is such a great energy source from a standpoint of you know, cost and, and uh, carbon emissions and, and things like this, um, nuclear power today is not really a, a viable economic proposition for utilities because the plants are so expensive to build. So, you know, you're 30, 40 years out from the building of a plant. Yes, that's a very low cost source of generating capacity, but it's a huge pill to swallow for a utility to spend billions and billions of dollars without a, really a lot of guarantees of when that generating capacity is going to come online. 
So I think as with a lot of technologies and energy in particular, you know, once we really nail down the economics and demonstrate a plant and say, hey, we can build these things, you know, at a cost that's competitive with fossil generation, I think it, it will really take off. Who's going to commercialize it, you think? Well, so it's a good question. I mean, I, I would like to. Um, we're not quite at that scale yet, um, but I'm hoping that, you know, once we find the right um, industrial partners, you know, f big industrial partners that know how to make, you know, heavy machinery, that once we find the right partners and once we kind of line up the right kind of coalition of support funding from governments and private um, industry, that, you know, we can make it happen. And uh, I'm not, you know, I don't care if it's, you know, me personally, you know, my company that does it, I, I think, you know, it's going to require many companies, you know, developing this technology. But, but my hope is that we've kind of identified the right set of, you know, technologies and materials and things that um, us and many other people can start making these things. Because, you know, if you look at the just, you know, the amount of terawatt hours per year, you know, a country needs to, to, uh, uh, to you know, reach a high quality of, of, of life and uh, a, a functioning economy, you know, energy is, is a really a problem of scale. And, and nuclear has the potential to do that because it's very dense and, you know, a small reactor can produce, you know, 200 megawatts, but you're, you're still going to need to build a lot of them. So it's, it's, it's um, and, we, and we've talked about this in the past. I, I really don't think a lot of these energy technologies are all that competitive. I think it's more collaborative at this point, right? And we will get to a point, hopefully, with all these technologies where, you know, companies will start to compete and, and, and within a space. But right now we need everyone. We need it all right now. And all the yeah. technologies being built out, you know, to try to really, you know, make a difference. And what I think is, you know, one of the biggest technological challenges that we've ever faced, which is how to make this energy transition. And once we're done with it, I mean, we're going to be in a much better place, you know, for, from so many different aspects, safety and health and economics and everything. And hopefully we will put a stop to this, you know, burning that, that's happening right now where we add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and, and are creating these, these feedback loops that aren't, that aren't great for our planet. Amen. Well, on that note, Thank you so much for coming on. And you're local. Will you come back? I will come back anytime. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Taylor Wilson, everyone. Be sure to subscribe to the Limitless Energy Podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms.